Bible and turn almost to the end of the New Testament to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, page 1008 in these uh, Bibles in your pews. begin reading in uh, chapter uh, 11. Remember chapter 11, I know some of you are lifelong students of the book of Hebrews, but for those that aren't, chapter 11 is the uh, hall of fame of faith where the writer of Hebrews, who doesn't identify himself, we're not sure who it was, um, gives a list of Old Testament believers that trusted God and God worked in their lives and he sustained them. And they're listed in chapter 11. And then based on their example, he begins chapter 12. Let me read the closing verses of 11, beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So ends the reading of God's word. I want to mention, this is not the introduction to the sermon, but I talked to Annette Ashley last night, that uh, Eric's wife, Eric's our assistant pastor, and her mom is probably in her final days, and they were in a rush to get to Griffin while she was still coherent. But I wanted to mention that earlier in the service. So pray for them. A few years ago, Wayne Herring, who has preached here at a variety of times, spoke to our officers at an officer retreat on Friday night and Saturday, and then he stayed over and preached here on a Sunday morning. His sermons at the officer retreat had to do with the importance of sticking with the basics in the Christian life, of not becoming exotic in how to grow in Christ, but sticking with the basics. And his title for his series was Stay with the girl who brought you to the dance. Just stick with the basics. 
because one of the basics, the non-negotiables of the Christian life is obedience. In chapter 14 of John, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So there's an importance of it being not just momentary obedience, not just a flash-in-the-pan type of obedience, but obedience over the long haul. One writer years ago who saw this important truth wrote, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction. And that is what is so difficult. Because it's easy to quit. When the world beats us down, when it throws cold water, cold water on your enthusiasm for Christ. As I mentioned, I've been walking with Christ pretty consistently since I was in high school. And a number of people who started with me in the Christian life, who started the race, they aren't there anymore. A number have dropped out, wandered off. Some wandered off and now are dead. But cynics look at this, they look at us, and they say, you'll fade in time. You experience enough of life, and you experience a lot of the pain of life, you'll lose interest. You just wait. The hardships of life, they'll come, and then you won't believe what you believe any longer. Well, I've faced some hardships, but that's not happened. And that's because of God's grace. It isn't because of human effort. If you're not a student of the book of Hebrews, a little context here. The book of Hebrews was written to a local church or in a group of churches and believers that had been followers of Christ for a pretty long time. Uh, so you might say they were a more mature group of Christians. They were older, but they were starting to settle into the world, and they had lost their wartime mentality. Uh, they had lost that initial vigilance and that initial energy and enthusiasm. And their hands were growing weak, their knees were growing feeble, and their certain degree of complacency and neglect had entered among them. You ever find yourself in such an attitude? Maybe uh, careless, what you might call spiritually uh, lazy, negligent, complacent, complacent. Well, that's who he's writing to. Because if you're a newer Christian, if you've been a believer just a matter of months, there typically is a great burst of enthusiasm. You've been transformed. Everything is new. You talk to people about the Lord. You, uh, you, when you read the Bible, it's, it's, it's as though you're seeing things, and maybe you are truly seeing things for the first time. And, and you pray, and you look forward to pray. I remember as a new convert in in high school, I would wake up in the morning, and there were such problems in my life at that time, still are, but I knew now I had someone I could turn to. I would wake up in the morning, and as soon as I was awake, I would slide onto, the, onto my knees next to the bed as a high school senior, and I would begin praying because it was desperation. And it, it was, I knew God was there waiting to hear, and that was new. That was new for me. Well, this is written to those who've, who've kind of moved away from that to their shame, not to their credit. And so here, the Christian life is compared to a race in, in Hebrews 12. We find many athletic analogies in the New Testament for the Christian life, but here it's a picture of a runner in a race. that You come to know Christ, and now 
the process of sanctification, of growing in Christ, that period of when you come to faith in Christ and until either you die or Christ comes again, whichever happens first, this is written to that period right in there. And so here, in, like in any race, there's no complacency. It's full-out effort. And with that in mind, I want to do what I did last week and give you another disclaimer about grace and effort, okay? Before we look at the passage in just a moment, let me explain that. Faith is how one's life, Christian life, begins in Christ. You come to faith in Christ, you believe that. Now, that faith is not the end-all of the Christian life. It is not the end-all or the conclusion of the Christian life any more than a wedding ceremony is the end-all of marriage. That is the initiation. That is where you're born again through faith, by grace. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that none of us should boast. So upon receiving Christ, you then enter into a lifelong process that the Bible calls sanctification. Sanctification. This was an event. This is a process. Now we labor in that process of sanctification. We labor only because God is at work in us. It's not something we generate on our own. So if you reverse that where uh, I labor and as a result of that I receive God's grace, then you are denying the gospel. So never distort the scriptures to say, I will work out my salvation in order that God might work in me. Whereas the Apostle Paul said, I work out my salvation for it is God who works in me to will and to do his good pleasure. That's in Philippians 2. So many people, many people believe that if you truly believe God loves you and you are secure in that, and you know you can't do anything to lose his love because of Christ, they're afraid that if you are secure in that, then you will throw all diligence in your Christian walk to the wind. As though, oh, well, if he loves me, and I'm a recipient of his grace. I'm a sinner. He's a God of grace. I'll bring the sin to the table, and he can bring the grace, and I'll just do whatever I want to, and I can't lose that. The Apostle Paul, in addressing that, said, What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. That's a, in the Greek, that is a big no. Big no, if you tell a child. This is not just a no, it's a big no. May it never be. The reality is, unless you know you are secure in your relationship with God, unless I am certain that God loves me, that he has placed upon me his everlasting love, as the scripture teaches, if I don't truly believe that, I will not be motivated to serve him. It will have the opposite effect. I mentioned last week, imagine being in a marriage where each day you have to earn the love of your spouse. Now, if you're in a marriage like that, I'm sorry. I had someone approach me after the sermon and said, that's my marriage. So that's, that's a tragedy, and that's another issue. But if you are in a marriage, and you never have any certainty of the love of your spouse, you never have that assurance that you're accepted, and so each day you wake up, month after month, year after year, and you say, okay, I've got to try and earn her love today, or I've got to try and earn... His appreciation today. So what will I do? Here's my list, and I'll start on this, and I'll give it my best effort. 
And then maybe he'll love me, maybe he won't. Maybe she'll love me, maybe she won't. How long will there be joy in that kind of relationship? There'll be no joy. There'll be anger, there'll be resentment, and finally you'll say, I am tired of this. This is pointless. I'm like a, I'm like a hamster on a wheel running around in a circle. That will not give you joy. And that's the scripture's point. I must be secure in my relationship with Christ that I know he loves me. Now I'm motivated to serve him. And I don't look to the serving. I don't look to what's described here that we're going to look at in Hebrews 12 as making me right with God. So with those thoughts in mind, let me conclude that with this thought from Jerry Bridges from his book, Transforming Grace. He says it far better than I could. He said, we are brought into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. Now, let's look at how we're to run the race. And I said all this before this passage because there is a tendency for those of us that come from legalistic backgrounds, maybe fundamentalist backgrounds where we were taught a certain code, if you're in church, you can do these things, or if you're a church member, and not those things. And it was very legalistic, as though you're only accepted by God if you do these things and don't do those things. So we were over in a ditch on this side. You ever been in a car and overcompensated? One wheel went off. What do you do? You turn the wheel, where do you go? You go in the ditch on the other side. And so the overcompensation is now, oh, it's all God's grace. Don't give it any effort. If you say the O word, you know what O is for the preacher? Ought. And if you say the word ought, and I've had it happen here in this church, that, that people say that's, that's almost like heresy. Because there is no ought in the Christian life, they will say. And I want to say, why do we have the New Testament? It was written to deal with issues in the church. Ought to do things in marriage, but why do we ought to do that? Why do we ought? Because of God's grace. Because we're in a relationship with him. Not to earn that relationship. If we say that, well, no, now, I'm a Christian. There's no obligation to do anything. Then I think we've gone from that ditch over to this ditch. And one of the passages this ditch hates is this. They hate Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. With that thought in mind, let's look for the last few moments we have at this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Who is this cloud? Who is this multitude? Well, those are the people mentioned in the chapter 11. Moses and Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah, all those who it tells us, and I read to you, had suffered and died of whom the world was not worthy. These were people that had known God and trusted God and he had worked in them. And they did not receive the temporal promises in this life because there was something far greater planned for afterwards. Well, how do they witness to us? He says, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. You might be tempted to think, well, the picture is 
here I'm a Christian, these other Christians, and we're running the race, and the idea is like we're in a stadium, and here's all these Old Testament believers. There's David, and there's Samuel, and there's Ruth, and there's, there's all them. They're gathered around, and they're watching. That's really not the picture. See, that, that's witnessing us, but they bear witness to us. For example, one afternoon I was standing. This really happened. I sit in a preacher store. It really happened. I was standing on the sidewalk and talking with a man, and I was kind of looking over his shoulder because I heard what ended up being the sounds previous to a big car crash right in the intersection there, right there. And I saw what happened. And immediately when the cars crashed, I looked up at the, the traffic signals to see who had the red light and who had the green light. And so as the things unfolded, no one was seriously hurt. Cars were demolished. Well, when the policeman came and was interviewing people, and I said, I saw the whole thing. I was standing right here. And so he said, well, tell me what happened. So I described to him, well, the light on this side was green, therefore that one must have been red and so forth. So what am I doing? I am at that point, I had witnessed the wreck, but I am bearing witness. I'm witnessing to him. That's more the picture here. They are telling us, they are witnessing, they are revealing to us what God did in their lives, what they saw God do. And we're surrounded by these. So, for example, if it was Noah, he's listed there in verse 7. He witnesses to us through the testimony of the Scriptures. And so we read about this man whom God called to, to do this ridiculous, foolish thing, build this boat. And it took him roughly 100 years. You realize that? Almost 100 years. And he's the target of great ridicule as he's not only building that, but he warns, he preaches about God's judgment to come. And he's totally out of step with the people of his day. And yet he, he remains faithful to God. He believes God. And God sustains him. And it is as though as you are running the race, here's Noah. And he's not there so much to watch you. He is bearing testimony. Look, look what happened to me. Look, I was... Uh, God was faithful. God was faithful to do what he said when even I had my doubts and everyone doubted and even mocked at what God said he was going to do. So he's a witness and we're surrounded by a great cloud. It means a multitude. So it's not just one or two believers from the past, biblically, and also you add in all from church history and others you've even known personally. It's a multitude. It's a cloud of witnesses bearing testimony to us for our encouragement. To help you persevere, God also gives a plan for how to run the race. It says in verse 1, let us lay aside every weight. We see athletes, you go to live events, you watch international competitions and the Olympics and things like that on television. We know that today you see all sorts of wind-resistant Outfits, friction-resistant outfits, whether it's runners or bikers or skiers or speed skaters, they want nothing to slow them down. Now, verse 1 is saying, lay aside every weight. Some of you here have run, do run marathons. All I can say is if you do, I'm sure you have other issues as well. But if you do, I imagine being there at the start when all the crowd is there coming up to the starting line. And imagine this person walking up that's going an athlete, has their number and so forth. They're, they've entered the race and they have this backpack on. It's a large backpack. And you say, what is in the backpack? Well, it's, it's, going to be a, it's going to be a long day. I mean, many, many hours. 
Uh, so I brought a change of clothes. In fact, I read it might rain. So I, I brought some rain gear. And uh, you never know how long these shoes will last. So I've got an additional pair of running shoes. Even brought lunch. And if I don't do too well, I brought supper too. So that's all in there. Got a nice bandage. Got some Bengay. Now, no one would do that. No one would do that because you, you don't, you don't uh, suit up to run a race. You, you strip down. Football players, football players suit up with helmets and pads and, and hockey players. Think of all their gear. Southerners, imagine that. They suit up, but runners minimize. The whole intention is to minimize the lightest, the thinnest, the least encumbering clothes. That's what they want. Spiritually, we are to jettison. We are to discard. We are to put off anything that might affect, hinder my pursuit of Christ as I fix my eyes on Him. That's why I think it's far better to approach issues in our lives rather than saying, well, what's right and what's wrong. There's certainly a place for that. I would rather question things. Is, does, is this help me? Does this help us? For Barbara and myself to ask, does this help us in our walk with Christ? For example, I'm going to mention something that's fine to do. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, when my mother was sick and ultimately died, uh, I've made many trips to to a hospital in Montgomery, three hours away, a long three-hour drive. And I was making that once or twice a week for quite a while while she was in a hospital there. So I would listen. I would try to redeem the time and listen to messages and on uh, Bible teachers, conference talks, and so forth. And one series I listened to was a series about money, the pastor and money, personal use of money, by Randy Alcorn. Y'all, many of y'all know that name. It was him speaking at a conference. And I remember... Uh, on one of toward the end, he had a question and answer session, and he was speaking to like 1,500 pastors uh, live, and I was hearing the recording. And he said, "Listen, pastors, it would just be my advice: don't build a house." Now, what he meant by that is not that it's wrong to build a house uh, in this economy. I don't think probably didn't need to, need to mention that, but he was he was saying that because he said it will take two to three years out of your life. And it will affect your ministry. It'll take that much time out of your ministry. And you've got other priorities with your family. And if you're raising children, do you really want the distraction of building a house? Now, my apologies to any contractors that are in here. But you see his point. And I thought, that, that's, that's pretty wise counsel for a pastor. For a pastor that we have enough distractions, why add something else? So for me, even in my walk with Christ, I try to approach things like that. Is this going to help me? in my walk with Christ. And when you start applying that to the totally the way you use your time and your resources and relationships you have and activities you have, it's, it's a great sieve with which to run everything through. So my recommendation to you is that even this week or over the next couple of weeks, if you can carve out an hour sometime, uh, Christian, and pray and spend that time alone with the Lord and with your Bible and with some paper and a pencil and just think through this and look at your life. I think it's good periodically, maybe twice a year, and say, how am I doing? Are the, what things am I doing that help me or don't help me in my pursuit of Christ?
in my racing in the process of sanctification. And, and I think that the writer of Hebrews intentionally did not mention specifics here because to a certain degree that will vary with each of us, assuming that we're talking legitimate things. So we are to run without weights, without hindrances, and then he says in verse 1, run with endurance, obedience in the same direction over the long haul, and everything chips away at endurance. Here are a couple. One is discouragement. Just, just being discouraged. Jonathan Edwards who was known for many things, but especially his resolutions. He would write out these lengthy resolutions of how he intended to follow Christ. Like one of his resolutions, probably the best-known resolution, is he said he resolved never to do anything he would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of his life. He also made this resolution about discouragement. Resolved never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. Now, I know it's hard to get the meaning of it just hearing me read it, but it almost sounds like a contradiction. Here's the first part. Resolve never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions. Second, however unsuccessful I may be. So it sounds like a contradiction. He's saying, I'm resolving my attempt not to do things I shouldn't do, but then not quitting when I do those things, not getting discouraged and throwing in the towel. So he was sincere. He was resolved to live a holy life, to live an obedient life to Christ, but he knew he wouldn't be able to, just like we're not able to, and so he was resolved to persevere despite his failures. How could he do that? It's what Proverbs says. Proverbs 24 says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. So the person who is disciplining himself for the purpose of godliness, who is seeking to run the race with endurance, without weight or hindrance, we fall, we fall, we fall, but we get back up. Why? Now we're back to God's grace. Because it isn't dependent on us. And because my relationship with God is not based on whether I stumble and fall in the race. And therefore, I don't have to throw in the towel and say, well, I knew I couldn't do it. I knew this wouldn't work. And I've fallen six times now. I'm out. I'm out of here. I'm off the track. Uh, just, just forget this. No, it's God's grace. Lord, I know you love me. I have this relationship with you. I'm going to be focused on you, as we'll see in a moment. And so when I fall... I get back up because my relationship with him is not based on the fact of whether I fell or not. Are y'all with me? Okay. That's one hindrance is discouragement. The second one, briefly, is disappointment. You get disappointed with others, you get disappointed with your church, your pastor, or yourself, or whoever it might be. Imagine how Peter must have felt after he denied Christ in front of that young girl by that fire on the night of Jesus' arrest. To me, the most remarkable part about that is not that Peter denied Christ. I can relate to that part. The remarkable part is that he, that he didn't do what Judas did and go out and kill himself out of remorse. And God 
restores him. Jesus appears to him later, one of the post-resurrection appearances there on the beach. The fish, remember the fishing all night and so forth. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Shepherd, 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 so forth. Tend my sheep. He restores him to ministry. Uh, and he, he, did, he lived with the awareness of what had happened. We see him referring to things when he writes First and Second Peter. But apparently he was able to let it go. He was able to let his public failure, denying Christ, he was able to live with it, not let it doom him, not let it hamstring him. Last of all, second to last of all, to help you persevere, God gives an example for running the race in verse 2. We are to fix our eyes on, as the New American Standard says, or here the ESV, we are looking to Jesus. So runners, especially as they came to the finish, would fix their eyes on the finish line. In some races, in Roman days, they had a pole with the color of your nation that you represented on it. You would fix your eyes on that, that pole. Probably the most famous photograph in all of sports, my opinion is, I mean, I think I've seen this one more in more places than any other, took place August the 7th, 1954. It was in the British Games in Vancouver, Canada, and it was one of the greatest, up to that time, one of the greatest one-mile sprint matchups that had ever taken place. They called it, in preparation and publicity, the Miracle Mile, because the Two of, the, two of the runners in this race, Roger Bannister and John Landy, were the only two people who officially at that time had broken the four-minute mile, Bannister and Landy. Bannister had done it first. These guys both were in peak condition. So Bannister, Roger Bannister, his strategy, he said later, is that he was going to take it fairly easy. It was a four-lap race. He was going to take it fairly easy through the first three and then really wait till about second way through the last lap and then give it everything he had. Uh, so that was his plan. But Landy changed all that because as they began the third lap, John Landy went ahead and turned it up. He poured it on and he gains a real substantial lead. So Bannister had to adjust his strategy. He had to greatly increase his pace and he's gaining on Landy. He cuts the lead in half as they come and hear the bell for the beginning of the final lap. They start the final lap. John Landy's going even faster. And Bannister, is he has to really pick up the pace. So they, they did not know how this was going to last for a whole lap, a quarter mile. Bannister said at that point he thought that unless Landy slowed down, he would lose the race. But the famous moment happened, and this is where the picture, and it was in film too, they come right down to the home stretch, and the crowd gets so loud that John Landy can't hear where Roger Bannister is. He can't see him, and he can't hear his footsteps. So he decides to do something that cost him the race. Remember what he did? This is the picture. He turned around to look, and when he did so, Roger Bannister passed him, and he beat him by about five yards. Landy took his eyes off the goal. He would have won had he not turned to look to try to find out where Roger Bannister was. Now, that may seem kind of lengthy to make the point. Where are your eyes fixed? The writer of Hebrews says, fixing your eyes, looking to Jesus. Is he the object of my affections? Is he the focus of my attention? Because we can be so easily distracted. A thousand distractions. 
my focus can be easily on anything else. Myself, the church, the families. It's an issue of the heart. Here are a few scattered thoughts I've gathered from other writers about this process of running the race. Dawson Trotman was the man who founded the ministry of the Navigators. And he used to say, you are going to be what you are now becoming. And Randy Alcorn says, every day we are becoming someone. The question is, who are you becoming? And they mean that by simple choices. Because you and I do become the cumulative result of our daily choices. Proverbs 4 says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. If you want to poison a spring, where do you put the poison? You put it right at the headwater. And oh, it'll take care, it'll go all the way down the rest of the stream. Proverbs is saying you guard your heart because that is like what generates, that is the basis of the rest of your life. So it's perseverance, it's persevering in him, knowing him, loving him, focusing my attention on him. Why? Because he is the author, he is the beginner and the perfecter of our faith. Let me just jump ahead where it says, Jesus did this because of the joy set before him. Following Jesus is not loss, it's gain. Although it's been many years, 1979 is when Barbara and I arrived at Reformed Seminary in Jackson. At that time, and I haven't been there in many years, but I think it's only gotten worse, the, the campus was right next to a neighborhood that was on its way down. And it wasn't too long before there were gang activity and all sorts of stuff right next to the campus. And so it was not a real nice part of town. The stores weren't nice. I'm making the point that you, you would not have gone there to go shopping in that area around the seminary at that time. You probably would have driven to another part of town to go to a grocery store or anything else. Well, there's one of the international students, and along with many others that are in our classes, and there was a fellow named Bahij. And I remember he was from India, uh, from what I recall. And he, he told us, he came to eat supper with us, and uh, I said, but he's, what, what did, he'd never been to America before. I said, what was your understanding of Americans? This was always entertaining. I'm sure if you've got friends that are internationals, they say the same thing. Like one guy that came, we'd have these guys over to supper, and one fellow came, he came from Africa, and he arrived at Calvin College, and his first question to all the students was, where are your guns? He'd only watched American Westerns. He really thought everyone had holsters and boots. <laughs> well, Bahij, Bahij said, what were you told? He said, I was told that America is just the land of plenty, that you can't believe the food, the clothes, things people have. Now, we're in a bad part of town, you know, where, the, where he's living and we're all there. And I said, uh, what, did, what did you find when you got here after what you had been told? He said, it's been beyond my wildest imagination. He said, I was totally unprepared for what I've seen. Even after hearing that, he said, I still can't believe it. That's what's described here. The joy set before him. The joy is far beyond grocery stores and cars and creature comforts. This is joy that's described 
people attempt to describe it, C.S. Lewis, he said it's more, this joy is more than a sense of comedy and laughter. He said it's more than earthly pleasure. Whatever it is that brings you pleasure is more than that. And he says it's even more than what we call happiness. In your happiest moment, you've not yet experienced the joy that's described here that is set before us. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said there is as much difference between spiritual joys and earthly pleasures as between a banquet that you can eat or a banquet that's painted on the wall. What if I stood before you and afterwards and I had this picture of this sumptuous meal and over here on the table was the real meal and I said, which would you prefer? Do you want the picture or do you want the real meal? Lewis was saying any earthly pleasures we've had here, they are a picture compared to what it will be like to eat of the real meal. I know re no reason to think he wasn't accurate and understood that about joy. Have you entered the race? In other words, have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus to say, I'm a sinner, I have violated your laws. Forgive me, God. I believe that Christ died for me. He died in my place. He paid for my sins. Make me the person you want me to be. Mold me to be like Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise for the work that Jesus did, that our acceptance before you is all of grace, all of grace. It's not part grace in our efforts. It's not part grace in our diligence. It's not part grace in our perseverance. But it is all of you, all of your grace and mercy. We pray because of that, that we would know your love and mercy and be motivated to follow you in all areas. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.